Hey there, Amanda Smith here. Welcome inside another edition of How She Did It. Make sure you subscribe. That way you never miss an episode. So today's guest is a nationally recognized and award-winning sports columnist, author, commentator. You name it, she does it. She's a senior writer for ESPN and one of the most respected voices in the NBA. Here is Jackie McMullen. Amanda Smith here with Jackie McMullen. I first have to thank you once again for making time and joining me on the show today. Oh, it's my pleasure, Amanda. So you have said that you kind of fell into journalism because back when you were in high school, the local paper at the time never wrote about girls' sports, so you did it. So what right. was sort of the motivation for you behind wanting to share those stories? Well, I was uh, I went to Westwood High School in Massachusetts and. The girls' teams just dominated. The uh, the women's basketball team didn't lose a league game for over 17 years or something crazy like that. And yet every time I picked up the paper, it, they were writing about the boys' team, who really wasn't nearly as good, and that just made no sense to me. And I did come from a family. Uh, my dad was a New York City native who read several newspapers, and he was a traveling salesman, so he would bring home the New York Post, the Daily News. We lived in Massachusetts, but he would bring home those those uh, New York newspapers. So I grew up reading Dick Young and um, I have a very young Pete Vesey, who later became someone that I worked along, you know, was my colleague or my, my, my contemporary, I guess I should say. <laughs> and so I kind of knew what it should look like, and it just didn't. So... I'd stomp around the house complaining about it a lot, and finally my dad just said, you know what, why don't you call the paper? And I said, well, I will, tomorrow. And he said, no, 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 now. He was tired of listening to me. So we, we call, I called up the paper, and uh, the very gruff voice on the other end, his name was Frank Wall. He was just a wonderful man, and he was the sports editor of the, the Daily Transcript. And I said, you know, why don't you uh, cover the girls? He said, because I don't have anybody working with me. I'm, it's just me and a couple other people. He said, do you want to do it? I said, well, I'm like 15. He said, well, if it stinks, I won't use it. So that was the beginning of my journalism career. You know, you were so respected and, and an inspiration. So many confirmed when I said you were coming on the show this week. Everyone freaked out, myself included. <laughs> but <laughs> That's great. is there anyone in particular that was maybe that sort of influence to you early on? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I was so fortunate that I went to the University of New Hampshire, had two great professors, Don Murray and Andy, uh, Andy Merton, who prepared me for what was going to happen next. And, and at that time, UNH had a guaranteed one slot a summer to be an intern at the Boston Globe. And uh, so I, I was that one slot. I was an intern in the news department, not in sports. But as soon as my shift ended, I hang around in the sports department. I had become friends with one of the other interns, whose name was Ian Thompson, who, of course, went on to be a, a very recognized journalist of his own. He worked at the Globe with me, also worked at uh, the National and the International Herald Tribune and Sports Illustrated, you know, just a fabulous writer and a great friend. So I would hang out in the sports department with him. And, uh, you know, when I got done, I just said, hey, look, I'm young, I'm cheap, I'm a girl. I really, really want to work here. And so my boss, Vince Doria, said, huh, well, let me think about it. And then he had me do 
college football games, I was a freelancer for them. I was doing, you know, UNH versus URI and BU was playing, you know, those are the games I was doing, Northeastern games. And uh, so he hired me and I just couldn't have been luckier because Bob Ryan was there, who's still one of my, you know, my champions and just a wonderful person who just knew, has an encyclopedic knowledge of, of all sports, not just basketball and immediately said, hey, kid, come over here. Let me show you how this works. Uh, Lee Montville, who was a brilliant writer. He still is. He's still writing. Uh, he's semi-retired and just had a wonderful, wonderful way with words. And I used to watch him. He wrote a column three days a week for the Globe, and he'd have four ideas going at once. And I'd be leaving the office at 7. He'd still be there. And I'd say, well, which one are you going to do? And he said, well, I have this one written, but I'm still waiting for the phone call on this one. So if I get the phone call on this one, I'm going to do that. And I thought, who does that, right? Who puts in that kind of time and effort? And oftentimes that, that call would come in, and I would say, well, that's great. So you can write this one for tomorrow, and then you can save the other one. But he would never save the other one. He would just find something new. It just blew me away. And then uh, Will McDonough, who was just tremendous to me, um, the, he was a football, long-time NFL writer and a legend, an icon in the New England area for sure. And he's the one that taught me how to how to report, how to you know how, when you call someone. Because remember, back then there's no cell phones. We're only calling people on regular phones. And he would say, when you're calling a GM, make sure you know the secretary's name. Say hello to her. Get to know her first because they know everything. And you know. Little tips like that. So those were the big three for me: Bob Ryan, Lee Montel, and uh, Will McDonough. And of course, Ian. A year after I got hired, he got hired. So we were the we were the youngsters, and we had we were great friends. He's still my best friend in the business to this day. But we competed with one another as as friendly as we were. We wanted to get ahead, so we were competing with each other for great stories. So there was no chance to even exhale. Right, I just wanted to be the best I could be, and if I wasn't, I knew Ian was. So uh, we we were great in that regard for each other. I think we really pushed each other. Did you imagine that your career would sort of progress to the level that it's at today? Oh no, especially on the television side. I had absolutely no formal <laughs> television training whatsoever, and I think the first TV I ever did was actually Bob Ryan was working. Bob Ryan had a brief hiatus where he was working at a local station here, Channel 5, and he had a Sunday morning show, and he asked me to come on, and I was just a wreck. I didn't sleep all night, and uh, so I went on with him, and, you know, we knew each other pretty well, so it was pretty conversational, and that's when people started saying, oh, well, maybe she might be okay at this, and ESPN, when I was very young, gosh, in the 80s, had me do something called the NBA beat. I mean, it was just dreadful. I was dreadful. I didn't know what I was doing. And they had they gave me a, a coach to work with me on, you know, how to present my my content. And she said to me one day, "Well, it's your content is great, but truthfully, when people watch you, seventy percent of them care about how you look. Only thirty percent of them care about content. So that was really." I didn't like hearing that. That was a real bummer. And I don't think that's really true anymore. It may have been true back then in the 80s, but I don't think it's true now. So, you know, I 
I kind of fell into television just mostly through my connection with ESPN. I was still working at the Globe, but ESPN would use me for various TV ventures. And part of that was because Vince Doria, the man who had hired me all those years ago, had landed at ESPN. So he was familiar with my work. I have had Doris Burke on the show, and she told this story of of you being a writer on Press Row at the Boston Garden. And you looked around, and you were the only woman for, like, miles and miles. Over Mm -hmm. time, maybe what are some of the changes you have seen and experienced in regards to how women in sports are viewed? I just think it's completely different now. I can't remember the last time I was in a press box and I was the only woman. It's been decades, I think, 20 years at least. Um, But when I started, I was always the only one. Now, Leslie Visser was on our staff. She was a very accomplished writer, but she had moved to New York, so she was based out of New York. Um, There was another great young uh, female journalist in the city. Her name was Karen Garrigian. She still writes for the Boston Herald and does a fantastic job. But at that time, she was covering hockey, and I was covering basketball. So our paths never crossed. We we were never together. So, you know, you'd look around, and you're like, okay, well, this is how it's going to be. And you just try to, you know, handle yourself the best that you can. The biggest problems I ran into in the early years was, you know, there's a law, Title IX, that says you have to have equal, you know, it, it has to be equal for both sexes. So the pro teams in particular uh, they had no recourse. They had to allow me in their locker room. That was the law. It was a federal law. But the colleges, it was a little murkier. Things were a little trickier with the colleges. Most of the basketball coaches and basketball teams were great about it. Uh, they they really never made me feel uncomfortable. But the football coaches were a little more old school. And I remember when I was covering Boston College and Jack Bicknell was covering BC, and I loved Jack Bicknell, and we got along great, but he just didn't want me in his locker room. And I tried to explain to him, listen, you let all those other guys in and you don't let me in. That's a hor- I'm at a horrible disadvantage. And he said, you're right. So he closed the locker room to everybody. Well, and needless to say, that didn't make me very popular. But it had to be the same for everyone. And so they started bringing players out after the game, which is not ideal because um, if you've been in a, a, a locker room, you know that the emotions and how those emotions present themselves following a big win or a big loss or whatever the occasion, uh, it's really a big part of the story. And, you, you know, to be in that locker room and to feel it and to, to be able to interview players, you know, in those raw moments is very important to what we do. What drew you specifically to basketball? Well, I love basketball. Um, I played basketball in, in high school and in college. I started playing very late. I, that great team I was telling you about before that went 17 years without uh, losing the league game, I was afraid to try out for the team, so I didn't. I'd go to the door, I was dressed in my gear, and then I wouldn't walk through the door. I was afraid to try out. So You I never tried out? Very well, I tried out my junior year because the coach, who's who's a great friend of mine now, Kathy Delaney-Smith, she's the Harvard coach and is the winningest Ivy League coach in history, even more wins than Pete Carell. My junior year, she ran into me in the hall. I was playing other sports. I ran track, and I was a field hockey player. And she said, oh, I was down at the junior high today. I saw your sister play. My sister, Sue, was just a fabulous high school player. And she said, at least I'll get one McMullen to play for me. And I said, oh, well, maybe I'll try out this year. And she looked at me just horrified. Remember, now I'm five foot ten, you know. And she said, you wanted to play all this time? And I said, oh, no, no, it's too late, I guess. It's too late. And she, she said, no, no, no. 
come before school tomorrow. And she started working with me, and I tried out my junior year. I made the JV. I was a junior on junior varsity. But I, I loved it, and I worked hard, and Kathy was great with me. Um, she really wanted me to succeed. And so by the end of the year, I got moved up to the varsity and got to play in the uh, state tournament. And then I, pl- I played my senior year at, at uh, Westwood and then ended up walking on at the University of New Hampshire and playing there four years and ended up getting a scholarship, not a full scholarship, because back then not a lot of us did, but I did get a partial scholarship to UNH. So it was. I'm not sure that story could even happen today because kids start playing so young with AAU and you know, my when I was growing up, there was no middle school team, there was no elementary team, there was no AAU, there was no, you know, there weren't, any, there was no team. You just played in the yard with your your neighbors. All right, guys, coming up on the other side, Jackie is going to answer just a few of your questions. Stick around. Welcome back inside. How she did it. So here with Jackie McMullen. Now she is answering some of your questions. So Jackie, uh, Tim Rushi would like to know maybe what are some key traits one must have to be successful in your position as a writer, commentator, etc.? Well, you have to have thick skin because it's, uh, um, you know, we're all under a microscope now, especially with social media. And uh, if you write something people don't like, you're going to hear about it. If you write something they like, you will hear about it as well. Um, <laughs> but you also, you know, you have to be professional, of course, first and foremost. And as much as you may like a player or a coach or a GM, you still have to be objective and to be able to write about them objectively. And that, that goes the same as if there's a player you detest and he or she is performing very well, you have to be able to do that as well. So that's probably the trickiest part about our job. I think sometimes people say, ah, oh, that's cool, you get to go to all the games. Well, it's cool until you have a six foot ten guy in your face saying, I can't believe you wrote that about me. You know, I'm going to get you. That's That's not that fun. So I think to be professional is important, to be be around. I always tell everybody, you know, it's getting harder today with access. The, the access is very different than when I started out. Uh, back when I first started out, we used to Celtics practices were open. We used to watch the entire practice. We, we don't watch any of the Celtics practice now. They let us in for the last five minutes when teams are shooting around. Back when um, I first started covering the Red Sox, the, the Patriots, everybody uh, – they traveled commercially, so we were often on the same flights with those teams. And that's you know, you'd get to, you'd be waiting in the airport, and you'd be talking with the players. So access is very difficult today. So what I tell everybody is, show up early, stay late, show up at shootarounds, show up at players' community events, be present. That's how you're going to develop those relationships. And uh, sometimes you're tired. And, you know, they've flown out, the team's flown out the night after the game, get the early flight home so you can get to the practice or to the shoot-around or to the film session. Show up early, stay late. What have you found throughout your career as the importance of building those relationships? Well, it does help when um, you have a relationship with someone, when you've been fair to them. I mean, really, all anyone should would hope is that you'd be fair. And, right. Uh, and sometimes they don't think you're being fair if you're being critical. But I, I do remember, like, for instance, one time I, I wrote a story that um, Kevin Euclid, who played for the Red Sox, was very unhappy with me about. And uh, it had to do with his relationship with Jacoby Ellsbury. And he really objected to what I had written in the story. And so I called him. I had heard he went on the radio and said he was upset about the story. So I called him. 
And I said, hey, let's let's talk this out. Well, if I didn't have a relationship with him, it would have been impossible to do that. And uh, we agreed to disagree. And I ended the phone call by saying, Kevin, I've written about you for almost a decade. How many of the stories have been negative? And he said, you're right, not many. So, you know, I some I think in the emotion of the moment, sometimes when we write things, it's difficult for whomever the the topic of the of the article is about, whether it's a team, a coach, a GM, a player, whatever it is. But I think if you treat people fairly and you talk with them fairly and show up the next day after you've written something that may or may not have upset them, um, then they grow to respect you. You talk about some of the stories you've done. OGD Smooth says, is there a... Oh, sorry, what was that? I'm sorry, who was it? (laughs) OGD Smooth. These are all okay. Usernames. So this okay, is my gotcha. <laughs> this is my favorite part is trying to uh, always pronounce these. Okay, good. <laughs> is there a story you've done that stands out to you as one you're most proud of? Well, I guess most recently I did a, a five-part series on mental health in the NBA, and uh, I think it was in a very important story. And I think it brought a lot of closure for players who shared their stories. I think it, um, I know, it encouraged other players to get the help they needed, which is great. That's a great thing. And hopefully it helped lessen the stigma of saying, hey, you know what? I need some help. I need to talk to somebody. We all probably need that. And I think for these NBA players to step forward and to be willing to put themselves out there and to talk about those things, uh, and to understand and recognize that they're in this pressure cooker, and if they don't, if they can't manage that alone, that's okay. So I, I would, I think I would point to that mental health series as the one that sticks with me. When you have stories like a five-part series, what is the process of kind of putting that all together? So the the mental health series was a year-long project. Um, actually, it was probably even a little over the year because it took, it just took some time to get players to be comfortable with what they were going to be saying and how we were going to frame it. We had a number of prominent players who shared things with me who in the 11th hour just decided they didn't want to come forward, and that was fine with me. The Mm -hmm. whole purpose of the series was to make sure people understood what was available to them, not to out people as someone that had issues. That wasn't the point of the the series. So that that one took some time. All right. Last question today comes from Taylor Lehman. And she says, was this always your dream job when you were younger? It really was. You know, my kids are 27 and 23, and they always say, well, no one says, I want to be this when I grow up. I said, well, that's because you wanted to be like a cowboy and a princess. (laughs) But I always wanted to be a journalist from the time I was in the fifth grade, and I went on a field trip to the Honeywell computer plant with my teacher, Mr. Pender, And I was just very excited about it on the way home. And I was sitting on the bus talking about it. And he said, you should write about it. And I had no idea how to do that. But I went home and I tried it. And I thought, wow, this, what a, you know, because I loved to read. I loved to write. And then, of course, I did love sports. So I just thought, wouldn't that just be the perfect job? And quite frankly, it has been the perfect job. Well, I have to tell you, I have, watched you for many many years and and read many of your pieces and i always appreciate the work you do and i can't thank you enough for making time to come on my show today so thank you 
All right, Amanda, good luck to you. I hope our paths cross again. Oh, my gosh, me, you and me both, that's for sure. <laughs> for Great. Jackie McMullen, right. everyone, I'm Amanda Smith. Thanks for joining us today on How She Did It.